KFBS. Radio 2. Sitrep with Christopher Lee. Vicky thank you very much indeed, and the BFBS News uh, team. I'm Christopher Lee, and you, you are welcome to the last of the present series of the Sitrep Roundtable. Next week, we move to our new slot, 4.30 UK time. More on that at the end of the programme, so you'll have to stay, won't you? Now, between now and then, it's the full five-star service. In the next hour, the Defence Review, ring fence, says the Chancellor, but are the nasties already getting under the wire? Afghanistan, is it really an unwinnable war? Is that why everybody but Taliban wants out? Afghanistan, again, are we buying a regional solution and telling everyone, don't worry, keep the change? Iraq, killing the Sunni volunteers, the slaughter goes on, the politicians... They send condolences. Iraq inquiry, why were the spooks corrupt or were they corrupt or simply utterly incompetent or totally ignored by Tony Blair? North Korea, more sanctions and the US sends in the really big flat top. Turkey talking to the enemy, but is the enemy talking Turkey? Michelle, Michelle Marbel, great on the Rubber Soul album, but can she hang till 2012? Finally, the best in history, why it's better to throw and not to drop a clangor. You're all wondering who writes this stuff. I do. Okay, um, strategic defence and security review. The Whitehall Wars underway. Yesterday, the Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, told MPs that the ratio of senior officers to junior personnel is being reassessed as part of a wider review of Britain's defences. That means two-star jobs could disappear. That's what they say at the moment. Or giving evidence to the House of Commons Defence Committee, Dr Fox accepted that the proportion of senior officers to rank and file personnel is out of kilter, as he called it. On the line, Major General Julian Thompson. Julian, is that about right? Top well, heavy suspect, with brass. I suspect there are probably uh, too many two-stars or uh, a sort of hangover from uh, previous organisations, and I think it's something that needs looking at pretty closely um, because we don't want to have too many uh, generals or admirals or air marshals in proportion to the number of people who actually, um, might say, do the work. Is it, is it true, that, I mean, for example, in the Navy's case, though, that there are more admirals than operational ships? Um, I don't think there are, actually. Uh, but uh, that is a subject of uh, which I'm not an expert, but that it's getting close to that, I think. You, I'm, I'm reading what you were writing in the Times yesterday, among uh, other sort of uh, uh, things you said, uh, well, what about the RAF? Do we really need it? Well, I think that we could go back to what we had all those nearly 91 years ago when you had the Army running the, the aircraft that supported them and the Navy running the aircraft that supporting them. After all, an aeroplane is merely a weapon system and it doesn't need a separate service to, to operate it. Uh, this is a hangover from forming the RAF in a fit of panic in 1918 when, he, uh, when Britain got bombed by the Germans. Uh, and I don't believe that you do need a separate service to uh, to operate your aircraft. But then that's doesn't that more or less apply to let's say rotary aircraft, not fixed wing? No, I think it applies. To, I think it applies to everything. And there's no reason why why you can't have your fixed wing operated. For example, your maritime patrol aircraft could be operated by the navy. Your strike aircraft could be operated by the navy, either from from uh, shore bases or carriers. Uh, they could operate. Uh, they the the rotary wing in, in support of uh, anti-submarine operations and, and also in uh, search and rescue operations, and the Army could operate uh, the attack helicopters and the troop lift helicopters and the transport helicopter, uh, the transport to fix wing. Yeah. Tell me, what's all this stuff about um, uh, handing over the Royal Marines to, to the Army? Just well, scary stuff or what? Well, a sort of flyer being sent out. There are people in the Army who think it's a good idea. I think it's a very bad idea. And one of the things it will do is reduce the standard 
of the average Royal Marine, which is higher than his counterpart in the army. And one of the effects on it will be on special forces, because though the Royal Marines is only 3% of defence in terms of manpower, uh, it provides 34% of badged SF, uh, and including the SFSG, that's the, the, the battalion that supports the uh, SAS and SBS on special operations, uh, the Royal Marines provide 42%. So you would merely reduce your capability to provide special forces, and I think special forces are going to be very important in the wars of the future. Quite a lot, for example, uh, special forces in Afghanistan at the moment. Uh, Indeed. Almost, almost uh, in army terms, a, bit, a full battalion strength. Indeed, probably more than that. And, 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 and of that, something like um, 34% are, are uh, Royal Marines. Right. Julian Thompson, Royal Marine Major General. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, well, with me at the Sit Rep Round Table this afternoon from the Limehouse Group of Commentators, Hajir Tamorian from the London Think Tank, Chatham House, the head of the Middle East Programme, Dr. Claire Spencer. From that other London Think Tank, the Royal United Services Institute for Defence and Security Studies, the Director of the Military Sciences Programme, and former Naval Person, of course, Michael Codner, and also the former Kremlin Foreign Policy Advisor and Editor-in-Chief now of the Stirring Trouble International Satirical blog site, Alexandra Nekrasov. You can hear all that again if you'd like to just go to uh, sitrep.com uh, and list again. Uh, the Defence Review War of Words really is underway, isn't it? Um, Michael, some facts, though. Has the SDSR, however we call it, started? Uh, yes, it, it definitely has now. Uh, the um, Ministry of Defence is producing uh, at this very moment 40 papers, uh, all of which are to be considered by governments, by ministers over August with a view to making the tough decisions in early September with a view to publishing... 40 not, papers? It's about 40, maybe 42, I don't know, on a whole range of issues, everyone that you can think of, there is someone writing it. And they've deliberately uh, identified what you might call non-experts to lead on each paper so they can approach it with a fresh look. But if they don't know anything about it? Um, <laughs> it's the fresh look that's important. It's the fresh look. It's the fresh look. I mean, it's, it's, it's walking really away good. from... from um, from yeah, advocacy from, and yes. cultural predisposition, um, or, or spreading rumours about the Royal Marines being merged with mm. the um, with the really large corps. Yes. Now, tell me, when does it report? Do we know that? The um, crunch time is the um, the October Comprehensive Spending Review, when the decisions that affect the first four years of spending have to be um, have to be taken. Uh, but the white paper itself is due, as we understand, for publication in December. Now, the white paper is only going to go so far as tackling the big policy decisions. The reorganisation issues that are also part of the review, um, the um, acquisition reorganisation following Bernard Gray, um, and quite possibly... Which was October last year? Yes, quite substantial restructuring of the Ministry of Defence. As I understand, that's going to need to follow because it would be a real mess if you were actually sacking blokes in MOD at the same time as they're trying to write these 40 papers. Yeah, and also hang them out to whom? To, to, to read uh, over, over AUKUS, presumably ministers, etc. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be looking at them, junior ministers, private secretaries, etc. Well, I think it's also the senior ministers. I think it's, yes. um, it's cabinet-level consideration. So no duck houses will be painted over August, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
and people are all pretty busy over there. It's um, um, Claire. What's what's particularly curious about the whole thing is this illusion that uh, there's so much has been put into the strategic defence and security review. Um, it's almost as if it's magic, and that when it's finished, that will fix everything. Ain't going to do well, that, is it? Yeah, well, listening to Mike, it all seems now to be happening in a terrible rush. And as you know from previous appearances here, I've argued that this really has to have a public element and some uh, some discussion with public opinion, because I think uh, fresh look or no, if it all looks as though it's been stitched up behind closed doors and you know people actually haven't had a, a moment to ask some critical questions. Um, it's not going to be very convincing. And I think in the context of the debate on Afghanistan and future needs and everything else, there's more than, dare I say it, even the mod specialists who need to be involved in terms of what the critical usage of these forces are likely to be over the next few, next few years. And special forces is clearly in there. I agree, I agree with Julian on that. But there are other functions and other issues that need to be addressed. So I don't think it's a magic wand, and I'm surprised it's so fast. As, you, as somebody through your group sort of having to pull this all together and put it in an international context, because it's, it's certainly true, um, you know, we say, oh, right, this is going to happen because we haven't got any money or it needs doing anyway. But then you'll be looking at it and say, well, this is what we've got uh, sort of obligations to be in certain places in the world. Are you surprised that the way that the... Um, that it's been done relatively quiet. I know there was a big piece today by the former Chief of the General Staff, General Dannett. I'm looking at it in the Telegraph today, just now in, in front of me here. Interestingly, uh, Christopher, it depends very much on your vision of the kind of Britain you want to see. I was having lunch on Sunday in Andalusia in the company of an English friend. Uh, Who's escaped to Andalusia. <laughs> Bad news, isn't it? And uh, two members of the royal uh, Afghan family were there as well. We were discussing these things. And this Englishman suddenly turned to them and said, it would re- I would really hate it if Eng- the French were the only people to have naval, a naval uh, a- aircraft carrier in the whole of Europe. So if you but he didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> exactly. That's so, the difficulty, isn't it? Mm, I mean, quite frankly, yes. this is the huge difficulty. Uh, I mean, there you have Claire saying, quite rightly, there yeah. ought to be a, a more public element to this. But the trouble is the public haven't got a clue what we're talking I've about. I've been looking at this uh, article by General Sir Richard Dunnett, former chief of the general staff, in the telegraph today, and it leaves me puzzled because I suppose I'm no expert on this subject. Let me quote to you, for example, he says... And what if the next war looks similar to Afghanistan and needs boots on the ground rather than fast jets, tanks, heavy artillery and submarines? So would the, would the other side be against these things? What is the fight actually going on in the strategic defense? Well, I think you also don't, don't buy the telegraph or listen to General <laughs> Dannett. Um, I mean, they're all the same. He, is, he implies as if we are planning wars as if the Soviet Union... No, he's, I don't think he is. I mean, that's one of the reasons that... The, I mean, it was all embarrassing. That's one of the reasons the Tory didn't send him to the law to make him a defence minister, if you read that mm. stuff. Now, listen, um, tell me, Alexander, um, think, forget, forget the Kremlin bit. Um, I'm far more interested in stirring trouble internationally, uh, which oh, anybody right. who hasn't oh. looked at no. it is the most <laughs> wonderful book. What do you, is it? www.stirringtroubleinternationally, all one dot word. Com, yes. Dot com, yes. There you are, very yeah, smart. There you are. Um, it, it's the, tell me, the, as the cynic, as the satirist, is this simply, oh, good gracious me, two years' time we'll be back where we were. You mean the, the review? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think the biggest uh, mistake everybody is making 
is that you have to base a review of your military for forces on their projection of what will happen in the next 10 years in the world. And unfortunately, nobody does that. Uh, what is, uh, I am looking as a cynic, but also as a former advisor to the Kremlin and other governments. And uh, I can tell you that there is a problem with Pakistan. It's potentially it can explode. There is a problem in the Middle East. Iran is not going away. China is behaving very aggressively, and it's developing its uh, armed forces to such an extent that you have to keep an eye on, her, on it. Russia is unstable. I've just been to Russia, and it's deeply unstable, and it might start to disintegrate. Can, can I interrupt you? When you say unstable, what do you mean by I that? Mean, I mean in the sense that the, the situation, the government is not in control of things. There are parts of Russia that might just break, uh, break away. Terrorism is on the rise. Practically every day, as I was told, there's a terrorist incident um, in the south of Russia, North Caucasus, every day. Two days ago, a group of terrorists blew up a, a hydropower station. Uh, very serious incident, not, not widely reported in Russia. So Putin's government is not really devoting much attention. So if, if I would be advising the people uh, in Whitehall now, I would say, look, let's look at the, at the logistics for the future. If you're going to cut down to the bone certain elements of the forces, how are you going to respond then when it blows up in your face on the world stage? Michael, last point to you on this, then we're going to move on to Afghanistan. Um, is that sort of consideration, that global consideration of partly we don't know, as well as we therefore we've got a plan for what might, is that going to be in this review? Well, that, that's certainly the line that the strategies in the Ministry of Defence have taken, uh, which is why the, um, the general down line, what if it's Afghanistan next, um, uh, um, it has um, not been um, the, the main bow wave since last year, um, uh, that uh, it's huge uncertainty and, and one needs the capabilities to do um, a lot of very different things and to change uh, the capabilities we have very agilely to cope with them. I mean, that's the main theme of everything. How you actually do that is the other matter when at the same time there's not enough money and you're trying to reduce and rationalise the force levels. There are some clear areas where you can rationalise, but at the same time what you do need, following Julian Thompson, is you need highly specialist infantry and you need the, the means to deliver it and everything else around that. And the greater difficulty, of course, is that mm. we can hardly handle the war we have got. Yeah. Right, the Kabul conference was double headlined, wasn't it? President Karzai said the aim was for Afghanistan to be responsible for its own security by 2014, and so everyone said they were drawing plans to go home. But in the margins, the commander, US General David Petraeus, a wise man that most people will listen to, he was being realistic. We go when there's no need for us to stay. Tell that to the president. On the line from Washington, the former State Department advisor on Pakistan and now scholar in residence at the Middle East Institute, Dr. Marvin Weinborn. Um, did anybody get anything from that Kabul conference? Well, I think they, they took away with about the best they could uh, expect out of it. Uh, Karzai had an opportunity to say, look, uh, we've come of age, and, uh, and therefore, above all, we want to see more of those aid resources come our way. Uh, uh, he, uh, he got some concessions on that, uh, some hedging as well. The international community at least could put a good show that uh, they remain uh, basically unified on the direction that they've been taking for some time here. Uh, 
I, uh, you know, I, I don't think anybody uh, expected very much, uh, but uh, they had enough to be able to to at least say that, uh, uh, for the time being at least, uh, this still remains a viable project. When you say a, a, a viable project, explain that just a little, because if you read the commentators this end and listen to a lot of people uh, privately in, in Whitehall, they say everyone now recognizes that this is an unwinnable war. Yes. Well, there's no question it's happening here as well, that the uh, really support for the war is, is rapidly unraveling. Uh, but the reality is that uh, no one really has a plan B. Uh, there have been a few that have been floated out there. But uh, the, it's all, they all come down to either uh, doing, uh, getting more with less or somehow uh, managing to reach a political settlement with the, uh, with the insurgents. Uh, on that score, uh, everybody seems to have something to say about it except the Taliban and their allies. Uh, everyone seems to have a reason to want to push that agenda. Uh, they have no reason to want to push it. Yeah, I mean that's one of the uh, one of the, well, the curious points about, uh, or two, I suppose. One is that people at an official level are talking about dates of pullout, whereas uh, as you and I know, it's only a year, well, I suppose, during the Iraq conflict that uh, it was policy. You never talk about when you're going to pull out, otherwise everybody just sits back and waits for you to go. And the second part of it is, who do you talk to in Taliban? Yes, we. we, uh, we this is this is the problem. Uh, uh, they have every incentive at this point in time, particularly when you've announced that, uh, or even if you haven't really uh, committed yourself to a pullout, if the perception is that everyone is looking for an early exit, uh, there's every reason why the, uh, the Taliban, the Haqqani people, Gulbuddin, uh, Al-Qaeda, if you will, uh, have to say, well, uh, uh, we don't have to give away anything because it comes our way uh, in just a while. Now, uh, there's not been enough focus on, on what follows from that, and, and that is the almost certainty of, at least for some time, a civil war, a proc- and a proxy civil war. Do you know, um, I was watching just before the conference uh, some of the business that was being done. Now, there was the visit to, um, to Pakistan by... Um, uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And she said effectively, look, here is a load of money uh, to build a couple of hydroelectric projects. And this sort of thing was going all, all around. It's almost as if um, we're buying a regional solution because that is the solution. It's a regional problem uh, and not one which ISAF or any other combination of a coalition can resolve. Well, it is a regional issue, and the stakes really for the United States, and I think for the West generally, are regional stakes. So we've we've uh, we focused on Afghanistan, recognizing that Afghanistan is the linchpin in all of this. But uh, my own view is that uh, if we if things go badly in Afghanistan, uh, the uh, the fallout for the region really is essentially where where we are likely to suffer the most. And uh, uh, because we've so narrowly focused on al-Qaeda, I don't think we've had a very defensible position here. If from the outside 
our involvement there had been defined as trying to stabilize a region which represents, uh, I believe, the most dangerous uh, place uh, anywhere uh, for our interests. I think then we might have uh, we might have approached this in a little different fashion. Dr. Marvin Weinborn, thank you very much for joining us. Can I just give us some figures here? Uh, June, we, this June just passed. It wasn't just bad. It was the deadliest month this war since this war started in 2001. Roadside bombings up 100% in the first quarter of this year compared with last year. Assassinations up 50%. Suicide attacks up 200%. Um, Claire, it, it is, it is, any war is grim reading. But mm. this is... This is only going up one way, and that is, in theory, in the Taliban's way. Yes, and it's worrying if uh, this isn't just sort of ups and downs, as it were, and it's not related to what the troops think they're doing on the ground in terms of consolidating their presence in in different areas. I mean, one of the reports I picked up on this morning... um, we're basically saying this is a sign that Taliban's getting more confident because they're engaging in more shootings. In other words, it's not long-distance IEDs they've left littered around. You know, they're actually more snipers out. They're actually planning ahead to, you know, attack groups of soldiers who are going to pick up wounded from IEDs. I mean, they can, they can net many more people, and this is extremely worrying, um, given that the whole mission has been to minimise the ability of the Taliban to do this. All right, Michael, they're still blowing up IEDs anyway. Um, the snipers, etc., nothing to do with the sort of courageous uh, idea that you don't shoot at uh, what might be Taliban if anybody else is in the way. Well, I, I think one needs to bear in mind that the big rise in casualties also relates to the fact that it's been an ongoing offensive for, for some time. And, um, and when you have... Um, offensives from ISAF, then there are going to be more casualties. That's an inevitability. I'm not saying that that's the only reason. but You're almost suggesting that it's a bit of a surprise that there aren't more. Uh, I won't push it that far. On the subject of snipers, I mean, there is the other argument that uh, IEDs have become less and less effective and therefore the Taliban are reverting more to use use of of snipers of a sort. I mean, they are snipers of a sort, but they are being Mm. effective to some extent. I mean, certainly the message you get back from the ground is one of of comparative success in moving the the boundaries forward. But um, uh, one can't be over-optimistic in that respect. But one just needs to bear in mind that there has been um, this initiative to gain ground, as it were, and these are the consequences. There have been undoubted successes, social, community successes in Afghanistan um, since 2001, but necessarily they do get overshadowed, don't they, by the, the political reality of it. It's the real politics. Very of much, John. There is high population uh, um, growth. There is uh, sky-high expectations of Westerners to deliver uh, electricity services immediately. But I will go along with Michael also by saying, for example, when I talk to uh, Afghans, uh, they do tell me that the NATO allies are now holding more ground. Mm. And uh, uh, remember also, really, maybe 80% of the population of Afghanistan hate the Taliban. Um, I was, as I said earlier, I I was having lunch last Sunday with two members of the 
Afghan royal family and I'd been told in advance that they were going to be highly nationalistic, that they were going to demand immediate withdrawal of, uh, of NATO forces. When I talked to them in their own language, I found them much more reasonable, realizing immediately under present circumstances, if NATO left, the, the Pakistanis would again become uh, active allies of the Taliban and would take over the country. So there is huge potential for uh, inspiring and organizing the people of Afghanistan to look after their own security. Um, Alexander, a couple of minutes ago, Marvin um, uh, Weinbaum was saying that we seem, don't seem to have planned for what happens when we pull out. What happened when the Russians pulled out? Well, <coughs> I mean, it was basically a forced pullout. Uh, the official version was that it was a political decision and that the militarily the Russians didn't lose. There was no defeat on the ground, technically speaking. And uh, I would I would I would say that uh, probably uh, when the pullout starts in Afghanistan now, uh, it will they will be using terms like uh, heroic disengagement or something (laughs) instead of retreat. But uh, you see, the, the point here is this, that this conflict was destined for failure because the main problem of this whole war was to neutralize the warlords who control the drug trade. Basically. The troops on the ground are fighting not the Taliban mostly, but the drug lords, because they arm, they provide all the arms, they have the money. And th- that was, I raised this issue uh, many years ago with the Americans and the British, and I was saying to them, if you don't sort this out, you will lose, because they will always have the money, and they do have the money. And they don't need that much. And all the arms that they buy are bought with opium money. So how on earth do you fight? an insurgency, which is self-financed. I don't really understand. But when, when they were fighting uh, the Russians, same people, I mean... We oh, they act- were financed by the Americans. We, there, was yeah. a, there was a quite substantial uh, financial input there. So that is understandable. But here, nobody is supplying them, you know, with, 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 with arms or finance openly. So that is the main problem of this war. Right. There's an important point. The Pashtun people who may be... of the population of Afghanistan traditionally have believed that Afghanistan, called after them, belongs to them. And uh, unfortunately, to some extent, they have been alienated by the loss of power because they were the backbone of the Taliban. The trouble for us, the outside world, is that they have got a huge haven in north, uh, west Pakistan, which is also Pashtun or Patan, and they can go there, recuperate, rearm, be refinanced. This is a bigger problem than just Afghan Taliban. However, remember President Karzai 10 years ago was a Taliban member. We have won some of them over, you see. The question is to make them believe that there's no future in fighting. Okay, I'll just just talk very briefly about um, Iraq, uh, and then I want to go talk about the Iraq inquiry. Um, But Iraq, it's the same sort of thing in a way. I know it's a different war, etc. But, uh, Claire, it is the same sort of thing. If you look at the the bombings, Mm. uh, certainly since 7th of March, the election day, I mean, Mm. there are hundreds of people have been killed and thousands of people have been wounded, all because... We haven't been able to do what we said we thought we might be able to do, and that's put something in place that would govern the country. Yes, indeed. We're still in this political vacuum since uh, March with no government, and it's not very clear what state of play the negotiations are in. It's horse trading behind the scenes. 
I think from the American perspective, they're hoping something will be resolved by September. But we're in this sort of, you know, what if and what not. Well, the um, Americans are supposed to be pulling out the combat people by, well, next month, aren't they? Exactly. Well, I thought the some of them were out at the end of this month, supposedly, and everybody out um, by 2011. Um, but again, they've gone rather quiet on those dates. I think they're, they're trying to refocus attention on Afghanistan in order maybe to have a certain amount of um, slippage in Iraq. But yes, they're on the horns of a dilemma because they absolutely want to get out of Iraq. The better to focus on Afghanistan. That's been the case for several years now. Right. Uh, let's stay with Iraq. The Iraq Inquiry, chaired by Sir John Chilcott, hence the Chilcott Inquiry. On the line, the Guardian's Defence and Security Editor, Richard Norton-Taylor, Richard, this week, all about the evidence of the former Director General of the Security Service of MI5, Baroness Manningham Buller, short version would be that she did a demolition job on the intelligence evidence used by Mr Blair to go to war. Demolition job, uh, but more than that, really. Um, from the purely pragmatic view, MI5, a domestic security service responsible for protecting British security, knew from the very beginning uh, that an attack, an invasion of Iraq would... Um, would increase the terrorist threat at home in Britain at home and indeed encourage as she said in pretty devastating evidence actually pointing to Tony Blair in, uh, almost personally really as well as her sister service MI6 the Foreign Intelligence Service which got of course the Iraqi weapons dossier all wrong um, and she said explicitly that uh, that um, the invasion did encourage and motive helped to motivate extreme youth, Pakistani, mainly Muslim descent, uh, Muslim youth in, in, um, in, in Britain. And she also said that that motivation in turn led to the 7-7 suicide bombings in London. So it's pretty devastating evidence, really. There was one point, um, and sitting there watching her, she was calm and uh, paused before her replies. She's uh, a supremely, supremely confident person, yes. Yes. Um, and... At one point she said that they, or her service, the um, MI5, had been asked to supply what effectively would have been pro-war intelligence, and she refused to do so. Yes, well, she, she, she um, as I think, uh, to, to be fair to her, she, 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 she did as much as I think she, she, she could have done at the time, i.e. 2002, 2000, beginning of 2003, to, to say that we do not think that this is a, not only uh, that Saddam... <laughs> Hussein is not is not threatening Britain and British interests, but also that an invasion would actually uh, increase the threat to Britain, i.e., the threat to the security of Britain. And she kept that line. I think she said as much as she could. I remember she telling me um, at the time, rather more privately than she has done since, of course, that um, as, as indeed were a lot of other officials, mainly in the Foreign Office. Who were saying um, you know, that the, the the invasion is uh, the invasion was um, was absolutely contrary to British interests. Yeah, do you know the other side of it? Um, she was talking about the Joint Intelligence Committee, uh, chaired by um, John Scarlett, John yeah. Scarlett, who became the next uh, uh, controller yeah. of uh, SIS. Yeah. Um, she said the problem was you couldn't challenge them, and that doesn't make. Yeah. The JIC rubbish, it, but it is only another Whitehall committee, and therefore yeah. the, you have to have that expertise, expertise around to be able to challenge what they say. Yes. I mean, they, that came out really in the um, Hutton inquiry into the death of uh, the uh, weapons expert um, David Kelly, 
um, where the, the, the defense intelligence experts, for example, and other experts, including Kelly himself, who I suppose were actually relatively junior, though a scientist, mm. they were relatively junior in the pecking order of Whitehall, and they couldn't sort of bang the table, and they, had, they were sort of shunted out, really. Mm. And, uh, and, and I think it's quite interesting, just before I forget this rather crucial, po- really pointed point that Manning and Bullough made, was that she very rarely never saw, uh, at the time, Blair on a one-to-one meetings. But, of course, the head of SIS, MI6, Sir Richard Dearlove, did see Blair one-to-one on many occasions. And um, I wondered, uh, what did he say to her? Yeah. The Butler inquiry, which is the other inquiry, which he had into the use of um, web intelligence in the run-up to the Iraq invasion, um, made it quite clear that uh, MI6 were, as I said, David Oman, another uh, witness to the... He was the uh, coordinator, inquiry, said at the time, Security intelligence coordinator said at the time, MI6 over-promised and under-delivered. And MI5... We're, were pretty annoyed with MI6 at the time. I couldn't say so publicly, of course. Right. Well, the obvious question, uh, last question, Richard, um, was MI6 in particular, but was the, was the intelligence system corrupt or simply utterly incompetent? Well, it's, it's the old thing of telling truth under power. Either they did not, they were seduced by, and I think Richard Dillard, but also others, uh, and there were divisions indeed with them, there were big arguments within MI6 at the time, they, they were seduced by their political masters, and I, uh, both by the Joint Intelligence Committee under John Scarlett, by Alistair Campbell, the coterie around Tony Blair. Their political masters wanted something, and they bowed. And they should not have bowed as, in the way they did. They forgot their role of professional sceptical intelligence assessors. And I suppose without making a too direct connection, uh, the chairman of the JIC, John Scarlett, did get the big job afterwards. Uh, he did, and, uh, and I think a lot of people now say sympathise with Scarlett, who, who was uh, assumed to be the sort of villain, if you like, at the time, um, bending to uh, Alistair Campbell's uh, will, uh, Alistair Campbell being uh, Tony Blair's chief uh, spokesman and an advisor on communications, as we know. And Dilla was sort of protected at the time. Now that the uh, opinion seems to be sort of uh, putting the blame more on Dearlove, who was the actual head of MI6 at the time, and less on John Scarlett, who was the chairman of the Joint Intelligence Committee. Hmm. Okay, next week, Hans Blix, who went searching for weapons of mass disappearance. Perhaps we'll talk to you again next yeah. Thursday, yeah? Good, okay. <laughs> okay, okay, Richard, thank, thank you, you very much indeed. Um, it, it is. It's, uh, Michael, the, it's sort of the Blair witch hunt and trial, isn't it, this? Everything points to Blair. Uh, that's what it's being... Going. I, I, I think what's... I, I've never worked on the inside within the British intelligence community, but I was on the fringes in the United States in the academic world on the way they handled this issue of pulling together the intelligence from their different the CIA, FBI, etc. And the papers that you used to see were very different in that you would have the general um, consensus, but underneath each one you'd have um, comments by um, stating the differences that... Sort of minority issues, reports. Minority reports, exactly. And these were very, very significant. That's where really all the interest always lay. And it's a sort of thing that everyone hooked onto is why do CIA think differently from the consensus elsewhere that doesn't seem to be um, the British way in in any context. Hashir 
Well, most of our audience surely know after all these years that I believe that the invasion of Iraq was one of the most glorious, proudest moments in British history. And yours? The overthrowing of a, of a genocidal monster. But on the other hand, are we saying that... Hang on, hang on, just, just be, I, I, I'll let you go on. Yeah. I can think of quite a lot of suicidal monsters we haven't overthrown. No, no, not on, on, the, comp- uh, on, on the scale of Pol Pot, uh, Saddam Hussein, Hitler and Stalin. No, no. Uh, Idi Amin was chicken feet compared to this yes, man. But, but we didn't overthrow Pol Pot. But, 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 we, we didn't overthrow Stalin. No, we, and we didn't overthrow we, Robert we Mugabe. All applauded, we all applauded when the Vietnamese walked into Cambodia to overthrow Pol Pot. But that's beside the point. But there was an implication here saying that Tony Blair should have given in, uh, should have given veto power to a small group of Islamist immigrants who have settled here over British foreign policy. Hey? Because of fear. Where does this them. come from? Yeah, uh, he was warned about the danger of terrorism increasing mm-hmm. in Britain if he invaded Iraq. Didn't, weren't you saying that? Yes, but it was also in part words, of the Joint Intelligence Committee, and, exactly, and it was also the the letter. I don't know if you've read the letter that yeah. she's that they uh, were saying to him. Manning if you invade Iraq, sent to them uh, in so March 2002, yeah, yeah. saying it won't happen like that. They were saying that was ignored. They were saying that if you invade Iraq, some Muslims in here will be angry with Britain. And therefore, forever and ever, whenever you contemplate mm. foreign policy regarding Muslim countries, you should first go to the Islamists, I- extremist imams and say, what do you think, sir? Is that right? Yes. Well, we don't know if it's right, but we do know that um, the public opinion at the moment will tell you that something like 77% of people said uh, on reflection, and quite a lot of people at the time said we shouldn't have done it in the first place. I'm just wondering, something that Hajir sort of mentioned there, and also the detail that um, uh, Richard Norton Taylor went into, round the table, are we the only people that are actually interested now? I mean, Blair's gone. Uh, the thing is ages away. Nobody can sit through, well, not nobody, I sit through the, uh, the uh, Chilcotting Quakes. It's fascinating theatre. But are we really bothered about it, Claire? Well, I think the critical thing is is we're seeing more coming out in the detail than in previous inquiries. People have been cynical. And documents. And documents, indeed. So people have been cynical about, oh, it's another whitewash, etc. I think what's really important is finally, because there's, you know, we're, we're now seven years away from this, um, people are prepared to speak out. They're no longer in positions where they've got to mind what they say so they can actually be more honest about what they felt at the time. Um, and they've probably been storing it up for seven years. Is... As we see the amount of lacks of checks and, gov- checks and balances at the heart of government is really we've got to learn from this, you know, the, the classic line about let it never happen again, because I think it's, it's been extremely detrimental that while I, you know, might sympathise with the idea that Saddam was a monster and he should be got rid of, you know, the lack of planning, the lack of insight into the impact, not only in Iraq itself, where the death toll has been exorbitantly more than it should have been uh, and continues to be so, as we've just discussed, um, but, you know, the, the lack of understanding of the dynamics of the region as well. I mean, we're still dealing with the repercussions. Iran is still part of the repercussions of this. You know, nobody was certainly in positions of power, seemed to have the slightest sensitivity to what was being unleashed here. Mm. And secondly, there was no planning for the day after. By all means, remove the man. But, you know, you, you have to be prepared to rule the country afterwards exactly. in ways that wouldn't George, end up George in... Bush wasn't prepared to wait. That's, that's a problem. No, but that's part of the problem of doing these things. I'll tell you something else which is important, I, I think. If, if, and, and a lot of people have, who are at that inquiry, have sort of passed the, made comparisons and passed the comparators along to Afghanistan. Um, a soldier 
going to Afghanistan for the first time. A lot of soldiers go to Afghanistan for the first time um, at the moment. Was not even a teenager when this happened, mm. and his his perhaps his grasp of the importance of it when he was twelve or whatever uh, mm. sort of puts all this in perspective, and to some extent makes Chilcot more important than the inquiries that have preceded mm. it because mm. it has produced this mm. easy to understand inquiry into we are going to send you to war. No, we haven't figured out how we're going to do that and what we do afterwards. I don't know if that's the point. Listen, I want to see if this goes anywhere else, and especially in the United States, uh, because listening to uh, from Providence, Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island, the professor of politics at University of Southern Utah, Michael Stathis. Um, Michael, I'm just trying to put this in context of what, how people in America feel about Iraq. I mean, there's still 5,000 troops in Iraq, uh, supposedly some of them out by the end of next month. Is it still a big issue? It's a big issue, but uh, other things have uh, taken precedence, uh, jobs, the economy, but uh, uh, when people do talk about foreign policy, of course, Iraq and Afghanistan have come to the top of the list. Yeah. Highly costly, still very unpopular, and uh, uh, I think the basic American opinion now is uh, not trying to figure out what it was all about uh, in a historical context, uh, but rather when will it be over. And uh, uh, I, I think there's even less concern about the outcome than just putting it to an end uh, and, and, and moving on. Okay. Look, Michael, I want to get... Uh, we're going to try and ring you back because the... Uh, I mean, clearly you haven't paid the bill. I mean, the line is absolutely lousy. Uh, but we're going to come back to you if, if, if we can. Uh, we're going to dial you now. Okay. okay. Um, you see, the point that Michael uh, Stathis is making there mm. is that uh, if they don't come home on time, then it's going to be a big, big political issue for Obama, who didn't even send them there, mm. uh, Michael Codner. That is a difficulty, and that's happening here as well. You see, the Prime Minister Cameron says, combat, no combat after, say, 2014. Still there, but no sort of direct mm. combat. If you don't deal with that one, what happens in the following May when you go to the, uh, go to the polls? Um, well, uh, I mean, that is the dilemma. But I, I think this business of the 2014 date and indeed the 2011 date needs to be uh, put in context. I mean, these aren't new dates. They go right back to the Obama McChrystal um, um, plan for mm. winning by 2015, whatever Just before to Christmas, last Christmas. Uh, and and um, uh, this is the objective, and you need to have this... Um, this uh, sequence of events to present not only to your own people but also most particularly to um, to Karzai and I can quite understand why it was most important at the conference for Karzai to say 2014 as well as everybody else um, but he was told to say that yeah the problem is of course then popular expectations and elections that follow and all of that and um, trying to manage that but I can quite see why you do need to present these these dates. But these contradictions, it's a complete contradiction. Everything we've known about um, over the two wars in Iraq, etc., mm. we've always been told bad news to tell anybody we're quitting. Why now? Claire? 
Well, I don't know. I, I, I just find it very cock hard up. to believe. Another cock yeah, up. it's a cock up. I mean, it, it seems to me, I thought lesson number one of military uh, engagements is to have some kind of exit strategy, at least in mind. Now, if you're going in somewhere, uh, and I think Iraq has been the same uh, as Afghanistan, where the reason you went in the first place suddenly changes under your feet because circumstances change and you end up staying under completely different circumstances, it's very difficult then to have a credible exit strategy because the reason you went in there doesn't end up being the reason you stay there. Alexandra, it's, it's, it's big thought here, is the big bigger picture. If your pension is lousy, if the health service is lousy, um, if law and order is a big problem at home, etc., uh, does it really matter uh, about Afghanistan and when you pull out and when you don't? Well, to be honest with you, it depends how this uh, public cuts will bite in. And if it's going to be a disaster, and we're still looking, you know, it's an option here, Cameron may, may have misjudged the situation, then, of course, Afghanistan would not be on the cards at all. They would be thinking probably of sending the army to pacify some people in Birmingham. So, so it wouldn't be a big, a big issue. But I think, you know, what has been missed uh, in both wars, and especially at the Chilcot Inquiry, or have not been missed, maybe they picked it up, is that in Russia, in the Soviet times, there was a problem when the government, the Communist Party, politicized the intelligence. That happened in the Afghanistan war when the Politburo basically forced the foreign intelligence, the KGB's branch of foreign intelligence, to produce a report saying, if we don't move in, the Americans will. So that was similar to what is happening here. And I think that the evidence we've heard about the former MI5 chief is that Blair and his people politicized the intelligence. They forced them to deliver a report which had nothing to do with the truth. And that is the main problem. That's the main lesson. If this happens again, we will have more wars. That should never happen again. I did something. I was just thinking, because um, I've hoped to get Michael uh, Stathis back, and we can't. I mean, the line is absolutely kaput. But one of the things that I was going to talk to him about, and that is the... The, the renewed interest that everybody seems to have in America about their internal politics and not so much about their foreign policy at the moment. You know, big deals, uh, BP, the Gulf thing, uh, the AIDS, AIDS bill, which he signed, I think, yesterday, uh, which he's been budding off signing, the health bill, etc. And I was struck to th- uh, until, um, until the deputy prime minister here, uh, what's his name? Clegg, Clegg. <laughs> Until Mr. Clegg actually got up in the House of Commons yesterday at the dispatch box and says that the Iraq war was illegal, which is not often you get a politician saying that, especially one in government, I was thinking to myself, why is it that American politics are more fun than our politics? Anybody? I'm not sure it's fun. I think it's a function of the size of the place. You know, if, if you think of... You know, relative um, impact of uh, the communities in which soldiers are known. We have the wooden basset phenomenon in this country. There's a lot of reporting on television um, for, about servicemen, increasingly so, and I welcome it. But I think in the States, you know, they, they've got the attention span, which is very limited. And, you know, there are very localised areas of the States which are directly, and by directly I mean through family connections and local communities who are affected by this, and the rest can say, well, you know, we've got other fish to fry. You know, they're not directly impacted by this. They, also, they also have powerful. Yeah. They also have some powerful and enlightened senators who would be able to turn to their people and say, look, 
if Afghanistan were to fall to Taliban again and, and, uh, and to their friends Al-Qaeda, the people who attacked Manhattan and uh, Washington uh, will be planning the same plots again. So it will concentrate minds again. They can quickly persuade their people, no, you cannot leave Afghanistan until it's safe enough. Mm. Americans, why, 70, why do 77% of Americans then in the past three polls and 78% in one of the MOD's own polls say, get out? I think my, my perception of America, and I've been there several times, is New York and Washington that decide No, no, policy. no, no, no. These are, these are international, these are international, in, in international polls which reflect what's going on in America. Because yeah. this argument doesn't stand anymore. You know, mm. oh, Afghanistan, if it falls to the Taliban, there'll be another 9-11. First of all, 9-11 was committed by people not from Afghanistan. If you, <laughs> yeah. if you look at it, it was mostly Germany, well, Saudi Arabia. So, so that, that, that argument doesn't but stand. Planned, and from, that, planned from Afghanistan. And right? I think the by failure of both of those uh, wars, uh, you know, that's that what makes them. I mean, from yeah. American point of view, it, uh, yeah. it was a failure. Yeah. Um, mm. I'd tell you something I want to talk about. There's the Turks. Mm. Um, people ignore Turkey. And I was thinking the other day, they shouldn't ignore Turkey, but until a couple of months ago in the uh, Free Gaza movement, um, Turkey was probably, uh, maybe along with Egypt, the most reliable uh, ally that the Israelis have. And this whole sort of thing is, a, is very difficult. But Hajir, uh, Turkey at last seemed to be doing a deal with the Kurdish rebels. Is that important? Should we know about it? No, they are not, de- unfortunately, dealing with the problem. Uh, the, I've just read two um, uh, editorials and two of their main papers saying the, the government is retreating. The Turkish papers. The, the Turkish papers. Uh, the government is retreating. The government wanted to make some cultural co- concessions towards their Kurdish minority, which is... Uh, Nobody counts, of course, in Turkey. Until recently, Turks did not even exist. Kurds did not exist. Mm-hmm. Now the government says maybe uh, 10% of the population, possibly 20% are Kurds. But the government is retreating, and uh, the PKK is saying, look, uh, PKK th- is the, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, mainly now concentrated in, uh, in northern Iraq, are saying if the United Nations were to supervise a ceasefire, we would immediately give up our arms for talks, for more cultural autonomy talks um, for the Kurds of the southeast. Gov- the, the government is retreating under the pressure of the so-called deep state, which is a, an alliance between the judiciary and the army. And uh, so I read the Americans have got this wonderful paper called the Los Angeles Times. And today there's an article there by Professor Henry Barkey, who's also Chief a fellow, reporter. Uh, yeah, uh, a fellow, fellow of the Carnegie Peace Foundation. He says, Turkey, let me quote him. Turkey is a country of laws that does not embrace the rule of law. Its constitution, which was designed by a military junta, is drawn up against its citizens, not the other way around. And uh, uh, sounds like a lot of other countries, doesn't it? The state can imprison and uh, persecute anyone it likes. It, the, he says, Professor Barkey, primarily at the moment, the Americans are blaming the European Union for alienating Turkey, but this is not true. Turkey needs no, a Hang on, hang on. Does he say, but this is not true? This or are you true. saying it? No, not he's true. saying, he's saying right, that yeah. the, uh, Obama is wrong. He, uh, Obama should pr- pressurize Turkey to be democratic towards its own people. 
the the Turks at the moment they think so Im- they are so important they won't be in the Union European Union without becoming democratic first <sighs> this is the problem they want they want to listen to Mrs Thatcher she'll get it right for them listen um, Michael Codner again we go back to where we started and that was the defence review etc I'm hearing people uh, certainly from the Navy saying now all that's going on not so much Turkey and the Kurds but all in that area including mm. the tensions over uh, Iran, Israel, etc. It's a very good case why you need a navy because you would actually have to be maybe in support or you'd have to stand off in the eastern Mediterranean. This is clutching at... Uh, what's, the, what's the nautical Salt equivalent of, of straws? Seaweed. I don't know. <laughs> Flying fish. <laughs> no, it, it is the sort of thing that, you see, now we're going through this uh, strategic defence review and everybody in the services at senior level anyway <coughs> are going around saying, oh, we could get involved in that fight, we could get involved in that fight, or we could have to stand up and watch that fight. That's about right, isn't it? Well, um, my first comment would be that I really don't think the Navy is particularly on the back foot at the moment. And I'm, I'm certainly not here to, um, to uh, uh, talk up the Navy, but uh, the arguments changed very much since last summer when it really did seem to be Afghanistan forever. And now you have a government that is looking for um, a, a defence policy which uh, does not... Uh, put it in the, in the position of uh, these long-term on-the-ground commitments and a, a more maritime uh, refocusing uh, um, would provide that. There are a lot of arguments against that, of course, and international influence, uh, you could argue, is most supported by the commitment to put people onto the ground in places and having ships doing gunboat diplomacy all over the place just doesn't send that message. When you, when so you, you s- could argue it's a cop-out. <laughs> all, all, arguments are, all arguments are cop-outs, all of them, unless they're underfunded, then they're tragedies. Um, listen, um, that's, Edward Sands said that, everybody wants to know. I want to try something on you finally. Um, we are now going to hear why it's best to throw and not drop a clangor. <coughs> Let me read you something. It's from uh, Doug Benz. Doug Benz in the New York Times yesterday. Here I'm going to read it. It's, uh, his dateline is Defiance, Ohio. Defiance, Ohio. From behind a neat ranch-style house on Melody Lane came the clinking and clanking rhythm of iron striking iron. Alan Francis stood more than a dozen long-legged strides from an inch-thick stake drilled deep into tacky clay. Perhaps the most dominant athlete in any sport in the country. Francis lifted his right arm, swung it behind him, and forward again. He launched a horseshoe towards the target 40 feet away. It weighed a little more than two and a half pounds and spun slowly sideways. It rose and fell in an arc until its narrow open end, three and a half inches across, caught the stake with percussive perfection. Click. Francis, satisfied but expressionless, pitched another clank. And this is Mr. Francis saying, I've worked hard, honing that skill. At the same time, it's a gift. I think I was given the ability to do it. Alan Francis is widely considered the best horseshoe pitcher in history. Now, we've got two minutes. I think that's fabulous. I think it gives images... And the point about it in a programme like this is that we all, and everybody who listens, and the public, have images of all the things that we get involved. Um, image of Afghanistan, a bunch of towel heads, you know, doing lousy things. 
That's the in public image. Every time you see a photograph, you do not see the photograph of, 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 of industry being rejuvenated or whatever. And that is the difference. You look at the early images of Iraq, what it was about, the, the Americans landing a helicopter on, on, an, on an archaeological site. Images, Hajir, very important. Yes, um, I suppose images sustain us, don't they, what we think of ourselves. Is that what you really are saying? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, I would be very unhappy because I'm not prime minister of some country. I'm very, very happy with my own humble craft of writing. And if I write a nice sentence in the morning, that gives me pleasure. But that's our perceptions. And when we say, should we go to war? (laughs) Isn't it? Um, We had images of what Nazi Germany was like. We had images of probably what the... uh, I can say the Aquitaines were like in, in, in 1300 or something. I suppose uh, the image we have of Hitler's monstrous government is, still holds, doesn't it? Unfortunately, there were lots of good Germans as well, victims yes. of him. The more we learn about that, his part of the history, the more we realize how much Germans suffered at the hands of their government. And yet it was right to go to war with Germany. Well, you reckon it's right to go to war with everybody by the sound of it. Anyway, that's it for this week. My thanks to Alexandra Nekrasov, Hajir Tamora and Claire Spencer, and to Michael Codner. Next week, we're back at a later time, 4.30 UK time, and we'll be here for the rest of the summer each week at that time, including a special programme on cyber warfare and another with the title, Is Peace Worth Fighting For? Back where we started, I suppose, Afghanistan and Iraq. So join me next week at 4.30. I'm Christopher Lee. Mary? Mary's in the hut. Sit with Christopher Lee.